For December, we're going to be looking at my Christmas story. For most of us, if you were to spend some time thinking, all of us here most likely would have a Christmas story. It seems that this time of the year uh, produces in us as human beings uh, a remembrance of a tradition, a remembrance of something that we as a family have done. Maybe there was a special gift that was uh, given during some Christmas time that has produced a story in you. It seems that this Christmas uh, time, this Christmas season, is one that produces that type of feeling. It gives that kind of emotion where we want to tell others about what we've experienced in Christmas. This is seen because Christmas, by far, uh, has more stories written about this holiday, more songs have been sung as a result of this holiday, and more movies have been uh, made uh, beyond any other time of the year than movies just about Christmas. If you have uh, cable TV, I always love the, uh, right after Thanksgiving, they'll talk about the 30 days of Christmas. And every night, there's probably five or six different channels on cable that will have Christmas movies going one night to another to another. And then, of course, uh, they always bring the great ones out at the very end on Christmas Eve. They'll show 24 hours of the same stinking movie. Talk about a waste of broadcasting time. You know, show it once, twice, maybe even three times, that's fine, but 24 hours of the same movie, and yet that's what they do. The reason why there are so many movies is because people have stories to tell, whether it's about a pair of little red shoes, whether it's about a reindeer with a uh, red nose, whether it has to do with Santa in the North Pole, or getting back to the biblical story talking about Christ and uh, His birth. It seems that everyone has a story to tell. Well, this year is a special year. 25 years ago, a man had put together uh, a group of short stories talking about his story of Christmas. It was an amazing story. In fact, it was a group of short stories talking about him growing up not too far from here in Indiana. And a movie was uh, produced uh, for it. It was so comical. It was so funny that a Hollywood producer read the stories and said this is the best story. No one could write a story like this if they tried. And so they began to take the stories that he wrote about being a young boy and they produced it into what I want to show you now. So let's look at one individual's idea of a Christmas story. In this modern age, Perfect. too many people have lost sight of the true meaning of Christmas. Shut up, Ralphie! So now, in the spirit of the original... I made you! Stop! Traditional... American Christmas. Thanks a lot! MGM presents... A Christmas Story. Dancing through the snow Uncle! Italian. <laughs> I think 
fragile. A Christmas story. Come on! The movie that pulls off Santa's beard. And unwraps the secrets. Did I get a tie this year? Of the original, traditional. He looks like a deranged Easter bunny. 100% two-fisted, red-blooded. It's smiling at me. All-American Christmas. A Christmas Story. Like I said, we all got a Christmas story. But you know what? As humorous as that is, and, and it's, a, it's a very good uh, humorous movie, if you're looking for some fun this Christmas, great PG uh, movie that you can watch, um, minus the leg lamp, by the way. I'm sure I'll get some, some cards on that one. But we've got Christmas. We've got uh, stories during this time of Christmas. And yet it's amazing that while the world says that's what Christmas is about, yes, that's humorous and that's a satire of what our time as family is like around Christmas, but what they don't understand is, is that they don't have half of the story. In fact, they've got a counterfeit of much of the story because we know as believers that 2,000 years ago the story of Christmas began at a nativity scene in Bethlehem. And that story is so important for us. It's not just a story along with all the other stories like Santa Claus and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, but it is a story that has impacted so many lives and continues to impact lives today. So what do we want to learn during this series? I want you to create a Christmas story, but to never forget the epic story that was told 2,000 years ago, the story of Christ coming to earth, being God found in human flesh, and as a result of that coming, that he may be born to die. Because if we miss that story, then every story that we come up with will fall short of what God desires for us this Christmas season. So I want to look at uh, the first uh, installment or the first chapter of the story as we look at that, uh, that uh, narrative that we see in Luke chapter 1. So if you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 1 starting in verse uh, 26 this morning. Luke chapter 1 verse 26. While you're turning there... I want to be looking at uh, the idea today from Mary and uh, her visit from Gabriel, the angel, of how we are to find joy uh, during this time of Christmas. Now, it is a time of joy, Christmas. It seems that everybody's got a pep in their step, a smile on their face. People seem to even be nicer to one another in the gridlock of traffic because Christmas is a time of joy. It seems to be a time of great excitement, but it seems in days like uh, we're living in today that Christmas isn't always a time of joy. I remember uh, the Christmas of 1990, 1990, some 18 years ago. Now, many of you know my older brother died uh, that year in September of 1990, and we were just getting beyond the uh, grief time of that uh, uh, horrific incident in our lives, and Christmas comes. And as a young boy, I was only, uh, I think, uh, at that point about 13 years of age, I remember thinking, if anything is going to get our family back on track, it will be Christmas. 
and thinking that we'll get all back together, the grieving will come to an end, at least for a short time, and then we will have Christmas. That didn't happen. I remember one day right after Thanksgiving, my dad seemed to get more and more agitated about things. Now, I got to tell you, my dad was a rock during the, the months after my brother died. He, he didn't show uh, lots of grief. He was the bedrock of the family. He did what he was called to do. But something clicked after Thanksgiving, and he really began to grieve over my brother. And he did it in a way that I'd never seen my dad act before. He became angry. My dad's not an angry guy. He's a pretty even-keeled type guy. And he came home one day, probably like the December 3rd or 4th, about this time, and he announced during the family dinner, I want to make an announcement, there's no Christmas this year. I said, are you kidding me? I don't want to see a tree. I don't want to see any evergreen stuff. I don't want to see any lights. We're not doing presents. Nothing. Okay, well, Dad's lost his mind, and uh, what we'll do is we'll wait. Mom will get him back on track, and everything will be fine. Well, Mom didn't do a very good job because we had nothing. In fact, uh, the only thing that I remember of that Christmas is coming to a midnight service here at the church, and that was the highlight of my Christmas. And I'm saying that shouldn't be a highlight, but for a teenager, that's usually not the highlight of any Christmas. And yet, my dad found no joy that Christmas. He didn't find it. It wasn't there. He couldn't produce it. And yet, for him, he's like so many of us today. Well, everybody seems to be enjoying themselves. Or everybody seems to be having a good time, partying going on. We live in a time where it is hard to find joy this Christmas. Economic uncertainty, the loss of jobs, uh, the concern about where money is going to come in the new year. We've got questions in the area of our politics. We've got questions in the area of world events. It seems like the last thing we should be doing this December is finding joy during Christmas. And yet, as we look back to that story of Christmas 2,000 years ago, the situation wasn't much different. We're going to learn about a young a girl, maybe 13 or 14 years uh, at best, who finds her world turned upside down. A visit from an angel articulates that her world will never be the same. Her life will be so different, so different from her friends, so different than she had ever seen. And it would have been difficult for her to find joy, to find peace, to find enjoyment in this time of Christmas season. And yet we are told that this season is to be filled with joy. So how do we begin to find it? Before I get to my outline this morning, I found this uh, article about Isaac Watts, who is, of course, the great hymn writer, who published a work called Psalms of David Imitated in the Language of the New Testament. And in that work, he articulated and wrote a paraphrase to Psalm 98. And this is what he said, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. He goes on to say, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Now, many of you know that's the song, Joy to the World. 
It was never written to be a Christian uh, a Christmas song. Only the first stanza speaks about anything of the coming of our Lord. And yet, later on, uh, in about uh, about almost a hundred years later, hundred in fact forty years later, uh, a man would take that song and make it joy to the world as we know it today. And this is what William Reynolds said about this song. He said, "This song exudes the exuberant joy." that should permeate the reader of that psalm as well as the time of the Christmas season. How are we to find joy amidst all the turmoil that we have? How are we to find joy when it seems that joy is so hard to find? Isaac Watts found it in a psalm where he said, the coming of the Lord should bring us joy. The Savior should bring us joy. We no longer have to worry about sins and sorrow. That thought should bring us joy. And the fact that God rules should bring us joy. I believe those were the things that Mary understood as she looked uh, to a time and to a world that was going to be unknown to her. And as a result of that, she found joy. So let's look at what uh, is uh, articulated in our text today. Luke chapter 1, verses 26, and we'll read till verse uh, 46. So if you'd stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's look at our text this morning. It says, in the sixth month, and if you're wondering what the sixth month is to bring context, context this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which we learn about in uh, 23 and 24 of that same text. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over his house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who, sa- who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Now at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of the Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Let's stop there. Father God, we come before you and we thank you. And we praise you in this season of joy. Lord, if we look at our circumstances, if we look at the world around us, we can come up with all kinds of reasons why we should not experience joy this Christmas season. 
But Lord, as Isaac Watts wrote, joy comes not based on our circumstances, but based on who you are and what you've done. And Lord, you have not changed. You have not faltered. In light of all that's going on, you are still in control. And Lord, I pray that we would find joy this season. And we would find it in the example of your own mother, uh, Lord, the one uh, who you willed to take place, that uh, she would be the one who would uh, raise you as a child and uh, send you off as an adult to do uh, the ministry, the Father's work that you were called to. Lord, as we look at her, we see that life isn't always easy and it comes with divine interruptions. And yet, Lord, amidst those times, she was still able to say, my soul magnifies the Lord. She found joy. Lord, let that be for us as well today as we look at your word this morning and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Now, most of us know this story of Luke chapter 1. If you were a part of uh, more of a denominational church or high church, this would be uh, the topic of the Annunciation, you would hear, uh, the Annunciation story. Now, if you were working along the church calendar, this wouldn't be taking place the first week of December. Annunciation Sunday would happen, uh, in fact, right before usually Easter. Uh, in fact, uh, almost nine months, if you will, before uh, the Christmas calendar says Easter is. And this annunciation is the announcement by the angel Gabriel uh, to Mary. Mary at this point is, uh, uh, un, un, is unknowing of the situation around her. She doesn't know that she's about to be called into one of the most uh, impacting ministries anyone in history would ever be called to. And it's from this annunciation, it is from this announcement that we find out three truths I want you to take away from this morning in our text. The first one is, is that Christmas needs to be a time for a gracious announcement. If we want to find joy this Christmas, then we need to understand that it is a time for a gracious announcement. It seems that everyone has news to share during Christmas. It seems that people have a desire to talk. Whether we share our news through a Christmas card or a Christmas letter, whether we share it uh, in song or in a program that we do uh, at the school or in the church, it seems that all of us have something we want to share. And the reason why, I believe, is because that's what the first Christmas was all about. It seems that the first Christmas was all about spreading the news. Angels going here and there telling everybody about what was going on. It seems that the angelic activity during those months were at an all-time high. They were out sharing the announcement of what was going on. Now Gabriel comes and he announces some good news to Mary. And in that good news there are some things that I want us to pull from today in parallel of what Gabriel does and what we should do as Christians this Christmas season. So the first thing I want us to look at in regards to this announcement is the personal messenger who is involved. The personal messenger who announces it. Of course, I've told you Gabriel. Now, what do we know about Gabriel? Gabriel was a chief cherub. What that means is, is he was one of the highest ranking angels in heaven. In fact, only him and Michael in the Bible are given names. Now, Michael was the mighty angel and Gabriel was the messenger angel. 
And so here are these two amazing angels, and we learn about Gabriel. And Gabriel is uh, the messenger that is going to share the message from God. Now, this isn't the first time that Gabriel does it. In fact, in Daniel's uh, chapter 8, verse 16, and Daniel 9, 21, Gabriel is spoken of. And he shares a message to the prophet Daniel. And then we will see him come back into play. It seems that he uh, works in twos because in Luke chapter 1, he speaks to John the Baptist's dad, who is told by Gabriel that he's going to have a son, even though he and his wife are uh, older in age. And so here we have Gabriel coming. He's done this before. He is a qualified messenger. But there are a couple things that I I want you to understand about Gabriel that are important for us because we too are called to be messengers. We too are called to share the good news. Just as Gabriel was, we are as well. And the two things I want you to understand about Gabriel, write this down in your outline. Gabriel understood two things. Number one, he understood who owned him. He understood who owned him. Now you say, where are you getting that in the text? Well, the text tells us that Gabriel is the one who's the messenger. Gabriel, the name Gabriel means the following. My master is God. What a name. My master is God. If he lived up to that, which I believe he did, what an angel he was. You know, it's an amazing thing. Here we have this message that we are to get out as Christians, the good news, the gospel. And if we would only understand what Gabriel knew about his name, we would be far more effective in articulating that gospel. We know the gospel. Most of us could articulate it quite quickly if we were asked to. But the thing that we forget so many times is that we forget who owns us. We forget that my master is God. Let me tell you something. If you don't live that name out in your life, it's going to be very hard for you to share the gospel. People are going to look at you and say, no, you're, you're a hypocrite. You're, you're teaching and your lives, they don't match up. And yet Gabriel would have understood this. This was his name. He, this is what the name that God had given him. My master is God. If we want to articulate the truth, the gracious announcement of the gospel to the world around us, the first characteristic we must have is we must understand who owns us. Do you know who owns you? Is it something that goes in and out of ownership? Sometimes it's God, sometimes it's you. Gabriel understood it, and it made him an effective communicator of the gospel. The second thing we see is that he obeyed his master. He obeyed his master. Look at our text in Luke chapter 1 again. And notice uh, what takes place here in uh, Luke 1, uh, 26. It says, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, uh, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant. So what does it say in verse 28? The angel went to her. Now it seemed that that's uh, quite simple. He's commanded to do something, and he goes and does it. That's what the text says. I don't want us to miss out on a simple truth, and that is if we want to articulate the truth of the gospel, if we want to spread the good news of great joy to the world around us, then we can't just understand who our master is, but the one way that we understand who owns us and who's our master is by doing what they say. 
I've been telling you week after week, I'm learning this by having uh, right now two toddler boys uh, in my home. Obedience is something of great importance to us. Because my two boys right now, the two that can talk, will say that I'm their dad. They will say that I'm the boss until I say it's time to do something that they don't want to do. Oh, if we would be like Gabriel. Nowhere does it say in the text that Gabriel said, Come on, God, I don't want to go to Nazareth. Remember, they're going to say in a, in a couple of years, uh, What good can come out of Nazareth? I don't want to go there. I don't want to go to Galilee. This is it's barely a town. This is nothing big. Hey, I'm, I'm a chief cherub, God. You want me to go talk to this young girl? Can I go and beat somebody up? Can I go and, and uh, strike down some demons? None of that is articulated in the text. God said, and he went. That's what he did. Oh, if we would be like Gabriel. If we would go and remember who is our owner, and then do what our owner says. Now notice the next thing that we see. There's a personal uh, messenger uh, to go to Mary, but then he brings a particular message. A particular message. Notice what it it says uh, in the text. He goes and he says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And then he goes on later, after Mary is troubled by these words in verse 30, he says, Don't be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You'll be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And, and he goes on talking about who Jesus would be and, and, and characteristics about uh, the Messiah. What's this message that he gives? Well, first of all, is it Gabriel's message? No. Gabriel didn't come up with this message. In fact, Gabriel doesn't say anything about himself. He comes from God. In fact, when Zacharias um, uh, is wanting proof of knowledge, of understanding why uh, in his old age that his wife was going to be able to have John the Baptist as a baby, he asks the question in, in no uncertain terms, prove it to me. And I love what Gabriel says in his, um, in his uh, talk with uh, Zacharias. And what he says is, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And what that is to do is to shut down a human because what he's saying is, is, I've got a message. My message comes from the boss upstairs. And I stand with him and I've seen him in all his glory and it is an amazing thing. And so you to question it is a dumb thing to do. And yet Gabriel doesn't say anything during this time about himself, his um, qualifications, or anything like that. He shares a message. What is the message about? It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about the glory of God. It's all about what God is doing in the world around us. It seems that everybody's got a message uh, this Christmas. Whether it is um, customary or national messages like Kwanzaa and Hanukkah, uh, there are messages like that going on during this Christmas season. Uh, But there are other ones. We hear many times more about Santa than we do Jesus Christ. That Santa and all the things around him are the real meaning of Christmas. But I found it uh, quite uh, um, alarming and yet humorous at the same time uh, in the same uh, manner. In Washington State, there's a big brouhaha going on in the state capitol, some of you may know, because there's a nativity scene found in the lobby of the state capitol. And the atheists uh, in Washington didn't like that. And so what do they do? Uh, They put a sign up 
uh, next to the nativity scene uh, that was written for all the Washington State atheists that said, At this season of winter solstice, may reason prevail. There are no gods, no devils, no angels, no heaven or hell. There is only our natural world. Religion is but, but a myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. Everybody's got a message this Christmas. Even if the message is to not talk about Christmas or to uh, try to put down those who celebrate Christmas. And yet, here we find Gabriel with a message. What was his message? Look at verse 28 and 29. We see the contents of this message. First of all, it, was a con- it had content of comfort. It was a comforting message. Verse 28, the angel said to her, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Notice he says later on uh, that she had found favor with God. What an incredible message. Angels had been used at times to go and, and to um, bring about judgment. Remember during uh, the ten plagues of Egypt, the last plague is that the angel of the Lord goes throughout Egypt and slays the firstborn uh, of every person who did not have uh, the blood, the Passover blood, uh, on the doorposts of the home. And so here we understand that angels weren't always uh, good things to have come visit you. Many times they would come and they brought judgment to the individuals that they were visiting. And yet Gabriel gives a word of comfort. He says, the Lord is with you. You have found grace with God. The next thing we see is it's a message about a conception. Verse 31, he says, you will be with child and give birth to a son. What he says is there's a new birth coming. There's a new birth coming, and it's a new birth that should excite you. It's a new birth that is going to change your life. And then he goes on and he says, but there's a command. Look at the end of verse 31. Mary, this is what you're to do. You're to give him the name Jesus. You may think that's not much of a command, uh, a name for a child. Have you ever told a, uh, a mom who's about to give birth your thoughts of what the baby's name should be? Have you ever tried to tell a pregnant woman uh, what they should name their firstborn child? My mother-in-law tried to do that a couple times, and she learned that was not the right thing to do. Just not the right thing. And yet, as I look at the contents of Gabriel's message, again, paralleling uh, this uh, importance of us being messengers, we too are to give a message of comfort. That God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's a word of comfort. To who? To people who are dead in their trespasses and sin, who are on their way to hell. That is the greatest, that is the best good news anybody could ever get. Well, how are we to share that? We're to share it because a conception took place. The virgin birth is one of the cardinal truths that we as Christians hold to. It changes everything about who we are to every other religion in the world. And what we articulate is not just because of the virgin birth, but because of what that baby who was a part of the virgin birth would preach, and that is that there is new birth found in Christ Jesus. And that if we go to Christ and we bow our knees and, and worship Christ, that a new birth takes place. And in that new birth, we are given eternal life. But it comes with a command. The Bible says if you want to follow me, you're going to have to take up the cross. If you want to uh, follow me, you're going to need to obey my commands. 
the message that Gabriel gives to a particular individual is the message that we should send out to the people around us with the good news of Jesus Christ. But notice the second thing we see this morning. Christmas isn't just a time for a gracious announcement, but it's a time for great astonishment. It's a time for great astonishment. Look at what uh, the text uh, continues to go on and tell us. Twice in uh, this passage, we see the words greatly troubled, and then the angel Gabriel saying, don't fear. It seems that this um, encounter with Gabriel created or produced an emotion of feeling of great astonishment. I love this word astonishment. Ray helped me with this word this week when we were going over my outline. And, and he said, I don't like the word you had. I had the word amazement. And, uh, and he said, you know what? How about the word astonishment? And I said, well, what does that mean, Ray? Give me a definition. If you don't know Ray real well, he carries around the dictionary wherever he goes. And he'll tell you if you're not using the word the right way. And he does that with me all the time. First, he has one comment, Tim, that's not a word in the English language. And two, you're not using it the right way. And he's always very gracious with those two things. But this is what the word astonishment means. It is to be struck with a sense of wonder and surprise. Okay, I like that. But notice what it continues to go on and say. Especially through something unexpected or difficult to accept as truth or that something is unreasonable. That's what Mary sensed. That is what brought her trouble. There was this sense on one side that she was in awe and there was wonder, what kind of greeting is this, it says. There's this sense that it wasn't that she was fearful for her life, but trying to wrap her mind around it. We know this is the type of woman Mary was because in Luke chapter 2, when she's about to, or after she's just given birth in the manger, Luke chapter 2, I think it's verse 17 or 18 of Luke 2, it says that she pondered all the things surrounding this story. She was a thinker. She was one who liked to wrap her mind and her heart around the events that were going on in her life. But it went beyond that. Because there was also this sense as she asks the question of Gabriel, he says, you are going to be found with child. And she says, how uh, will this take place? How, how can this be? I've never known a man in a sexual way. How will this take place? Now, what she's not asking for is what uh, John the Baptist's dad was. That was prove it. She was saying, explain more to me. She wanted to understand it. It was difficult to understand. It was difficult to uh, accept for a young girl who, who understood biology and the science of reproduction, and she wanted to know more. It says she was greatly troubled. What this means is she was turned um, from the inside out, agitated, kind of uh, not in a, in a negative agitation, like she was angry, but uh, she was in turmoil in the sense of, what does all this mean? What am I to do with all this? Well, we see this idea of astonishment it involves two things. First of all, we see how it impacts the recipient. Now, as we continue to go through this great story, uh, we need to understand two things as we talk about Mary. Because when we come to a story about Mary, there are two extremes that we can have uh, as Christians. The first thing that we can do is we can overestimate the role of Mary uh, in the life of Christ and in the life of Christianity. Now, our friends who are Roman Catholics uh, would fully understand this. 
Because in the Roman Catholic theology, Mary isn't just the handmaiden of the Lord, but as a result of time and history, and because of uh, what I believe is a skewed view and understanding of Scripture, we have gone from Mary being a servant before the Lord, doing as she was commanded to do, uh, to being uh, immaculately conceived, meaning she, not Jesus, we, we as Protestants think the immaculate conception that Catholics talk about is of Christ. It's not. It's of Mary. Okay, what we call is the incarnate conception, which is Christ. But they believe that Mary was born without original sin. There was no stain of, of original sin. That even though Romans 3.23 says all have sinned, and the Bible says in Romans 5 that uh, through Adam all have sinned, the original stain of sin is on all of us. Catholics say that, of course, no, that doesn't involve Mary. And as a result of that, uh, she uh, not only was immaculately conceived, but she was perpetually a virgin. She would never have children, even though uh, I believe in, in one of the Gospels it says that even afterwards she would go and have more children uh, and uh, continue to be a wife uh, to Joseph. We know that there were brothers and sisters throughout the Gospel. At one point, Jesus is in a home, and uh, someone comes out and says, your mother, brothers and sisters, are outside. Well, they say, no, that's not brothers and sisters, that's cousins, because Mary was perpetually a virgin, as if a woman fulfilling her role uh, sexually to her husband would be a sin. That's not. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that. It goes on to say that uh, then as a result of her not having original sin and uh, living the kind of life she did, that she would uh, die which is kind of odd, but she would die, but she would not stay in the grave, but she would be assumed into heaven. In 1870, the, uh, the Vatican came out with this idea that uh, she would be assumed into heaven. Her body would not see decay. And then in 1954, it came out by the Vatican that what would be articulated is the idea that Mary, now being assumed into heaven, now is the queen over all of heaven, the co-redemptrix of all grace. And so if you were to go to a Catholic catechism, you would find out that the grace that you receive, that we preach, comes from Christ Jesus, must go through the immaculate heart of Mary. We overestimate this woman. I would tell you, if Mary was sitting here today, my sincere belief is she would be greatly saddened by where people have put her in making her almost a god. In fact, uh, at Vatican II in the 19, I believe, 1960s, there was a whole great discussion amongst Catholics that there had become the cult of the Virgin, that Mariolatry, I'm not saying that right, uh, um, the, the love and study of Mary had gone too far even for Catholics. And so that's why we see churches named after her. That's why we see feast days given for her. When we look at Mary, we can overestimate her. But in that extreme, we as Protestants, you know what we say? Eh, she was nothing. Just a teenager. She did what God wanted her to do and no different than me. And uh, we don't want to make her anything more than she is. And what we many times do because of uh, the excesses that uh, take place on the overestimation, we underestimate her. And we say she wasn't really much different than any one of us. Let me tell you something. Uh, the truth isn't that she's the uh, mother of God and the queen of heaven. That's not the truth. But neither is the truth that she is just a normal human being, nothing of any kind of greatness to her. She was a woman that was great. In fact, she is to be named blessed of all women. 
and of all mothers. Why? Because she had a part in the redemption story. Not because she redeems in any way, but because she had the opportunity and was shown grace by God to be a part of giving birth to Jesus Christ as her son. That means something. She is special. She should be uh, given a place of recognition, and not only recognition, but a place uh, where we uh, remember her and use her as a model of true Christianity. We need to make sure we understand that. See, when we look at the recipient, we need to understand that the astonishment makes us understand where we should be. She was greatly troubled. She did not have the mind of God. She did not understand what God was doing in her life. She wasn't this uh, kind of semi-God who understood all that was going on. She was just like you and I. But amidst terrible circumstances and an incredible revelation that she would be a woman who does not have a husband yet, who would be found with a baby, which would bring forth the death penalty in her culture, she steps up to the plate and she serves her God. And so there's this great tension in the life of Mary. Astonishment, wonder of what was going to take place, but this great troubling of how it would all work out. The next thing we see is not only how it impacts the recipient, but how it produces a response. There are two things that we can do when we are told what Mary is told. When God calls us to a specific path, to a specific way, there are two things that we can do. The first response that we can have is one of worry. The one of worry. If you've ever felt God's calling in your life, if you've ever been uh, called to something that seems more um, out of a book for a missionary than it does uh, out of your everyday life, the first thing that usually we do as human beings is we worry. We begin to worry. And where there is worry, there is concern. We begin to wonder about things. Well, how is this going to work out? How is that going to work out? Mary did the same thing. She asked the question, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She doesn't say no to him. She just says, okay, you're asking me to do this. I don't think I'm capable of doing this. I'm a virgin. And, and a virgin can't have a baby, Gabriel. I don't know if you know that. I know angels aren't given to marriage. Uh, my son will say later on, uh, maybe you don't understand that. I, I can't do it. I'm incapable of doing it. How many times have we gone to God and God has said, do this, and you say, I'm incapable of doing it, God. Don't you understand? Remember Moses? God says, I want you to go before Pharaoh. And Moses says, wait a minute, God, you don't understand. I'm, I'm slow of speech. I've got a, what many people believe a stuttering problem. God, I'm incapable of doing that. I, I can't do that. And yet, Mary starts that way. There's this worry. There's this concern. But notice the clarification that the angel gives. He says, hey, it's all right, Mary. You don't have to worry about it because the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of the Most High, in verse 35, says, will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. What does he say? He says, there's two things I want to clarify to you. Number one, it's a Holy Ghost thing. It's all about the Holy Ghost. You don't have to do anything. You're passive in this. You're going to have a baby, and it's all going to be done for you. You don't have to worry about anything in regards to this uh, conception that is taking place. Not only is it done by the Holy Ghost, but write this down. It's of the Holy Ghost, and it will be of holy goodness. Where do we get that? It says in uh, verse 35... It says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One, underline that if you underline in your Bible, Holy One, it's the Greek word hagios, which means sacred, consecrated, morally blameless, pure. 
What does all that mean? The angel says, this is a good thing. What is inside of you is good, and it's going to be something that the Holy Ghost is going to use uh, for the kingdom of God. He's clarifying. To the worried individual, he's clarifying. You know, the book of James tells us, if any of us lacks wisdom, do you think Mary was wondering the question, what do I do now? Where do I go? I'm only a young girl, and this kind of angel, this angel comes and brings this kind of story. What am I to do? James would later say in the New Testament, if any of us lacks wisdom, we should ask God who will give it to us without finding fault. That's James 1.5. And here we find ourselves so many times right where Mary's at, and yet we never ask for wisdom. What we say is, God, it won't work. It doesn't, isn't going to happen. I'm not qualified. Go find someone else. And yet Mary, it seems, doesn't stop there. But notice what she says in verse 38. After the clarification is given, she announces, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And then it says the angel left him, left her. So what happens? Our response, first of all, is one of worry. Write this next one down. Uh, But it should bring us to a place of being willing. It should bring us to a place of being willing. There's nothing wrong with worrying. There's nothing wrong, nothing sinful of it. It's a part of our human nature. But if we are given clarification, if we're giving a, a promise, then our worry should end. In fact, the Bible says we shouldn't worry about things Why? Because God promises some things for us. And so once the clarification comes, our worrying should end. Knowing that God is in control should end the worrying that we have. But but notice what happens. After this astonishment, what is she called to do? And that is we see the final thing, that Christmas is a time not just for a gracious announcement and a great astonishment, but finally it involves, it asks for godly action. There's a godly action. What does Mary do with this? What does she do? Notice what the text says in verse 39. At that time, Mary got up, or got ready, and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. Okay, well, what are we to learn from this? That sometimes when we're called to something that God has for us, it's going to mean a peculiar course. Write that somewhere in your outline. Sometimes it's going to involve a peculiar course. Where does she go? First of all, she's told by Gabriel she's a virgin who's going to have a baby. She's betrothed, which is a uh, souped-up idea of engagement, a legal binding document that says that she was Joseph's. And if she was to be found pregnant during that time of betrothal, that uh, there would be a divorce given, and in Old Testament law, she could be stoned. Deuteronomy 22 tells us that. And where does she go? Does she go to a single mom's shelter? No. Does she go to uh, one of her friend's house? No. She goes to Elizabeth's house, her older cousin. Well, who's Elizabeth married to? Zechariah the priest. Not a good place to go. Why? Zechariah has the job of holding, holding the law up. His job is to make sure no one takes the law and starts doing what they want. She goes to a place where that man, Zechariah, has he, if he had not heard from God, could have called for her stoning. Let me tell you something. Just as in Mary's life, when Mary was called to something, sometimes it's going to mean going on a journey that's filled with unknowns. It's going to involve a journey filled with unknowns. 
She heads off to go see Elizabeth. Does she know that Elizabeth knows, uh, or that Elizabeth uh, knows that she's going to have a baby? No. Nowhere in the text does it say Elizabeth knows that Mary's going to have a baby. Does she know how people are going to respond? No. But the Gabriel tells her that God says, go. You need to do this. You need to be a part of it. And she says, I will be your servant. I will be your bond slave, literally is what uh, that word servant means in the NIV. It's going to mean some unknowns. If you've ever said yes to God, then you know what I'm talking about. That you say, yes, God, I will go this direction. Yes, God, I will do this ministry. And Lord, I don't have a clue of what it may mean, but I will do it. I'll tell you, I'm standing here today, not because the, the, uh, the next five or ten years were made known to me, but God said, I want you to preach, you're going to preach, and you better get used to preaching. But I said, but God, what about this? But God, what about that? And he says, don't worry about that. You preach. I'll figure out the rest. A journey with God is filled with unknowns. But notice what we see finally uh, in this is that her unknowns are brought some proof. She goes to this priest's house and some proof is given. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but, but it's the first time I've seen it in the text. It says that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. I always thought that uh, when I thought this through was that Elizabeth is sitting there talking with Mary and Mary tells her the story and uh, the baby goes whoop and starts doing some somersaults. And she goes, wow, this must be a God thing. My baby just did a somersault. If you've ever been with a, a pregnant uh, woman, you know that they're, they're always loving that, and sometimes hating for that matter, that baby's movements. I'll never forget one of the first small groups I ever led. I'd never been around a pregnant woman, and one of the ladies in our small group had a kicker in, uh, inside of her. And I remember one day she was wearing uh, a shirt, sitting a couple people down, and I'm asking questions as a good small group leader will, and all of a sudden I see... Poof, and I said, something's wrong. I've had indigestion, and my stomach's never done that. And I started to understand, and now I know because I've, I've had uh, the experience of not having three boys, but seeing my wife have three boys, make that clear. I get in trouble for that one as well. And I've experienced how movement in a child, how amazing that is. It's an amazing thing. And yet at the voice of Mary's greeting... The baby does the somersault. It leaps for joy. But then she also says, hey, you know what? Let me tell you some proof. God's into this big uh, baby thing, this miracle baby thing, because I'm having a baby as well. When you step out in a world of unknowns, God's going to give you the affirmation you need to go one more step to fulfill what he has for you. Notice the final thing, and that is that uh, when we follow God, we will experience a joy that is unexplainable. Very quickly uh, in your Bibles, look at verse 46 through 55. After Mary greets Elizabeth, and Elizabeth says, Wow, this is amazing. God has called you to this wonderful ministry. Wow, this is incredible. Notice what Mary does. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted 
lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Mary doesn't know what Joseph, her husband, is going to say. Mary doesn't know, the text doesn't tell us what her parents were going to do, what her friends might do, what the temple might do, and yet she is able to exude the incredible joy amidst tough circumstances. Why? Not because of so much her situation and the hard times that are going to come, but in verse 48 and 49, notice what she says. She, consider, she, she loves and has brought joy that God considers the nobodies. Write that down. God considers the nobodies. There is not a nobody in God's plan. God loves you, God has a plan for you, and you are not falling through the cracks of God. That should bring you joy this Christmas. God cares for His people. Verse 50, it says that His mercy extends to those who fear Him, not just in one time, but from generation to generation. Not only does God consider nobody a nobody, but He cares for His people. you got nobody who cares for you, nobody who loves you this Christmas, God does. And I'll tell you, no million amount of people is going to fulfill what God can do with his love for you. Next, she says God's in control of circumstances. Now, she understood God was in control of her circumstances, but she goes on and says, God, you've been taking care of all these things. You've been dealing with all these things. So why can't I give my little thing to you if you're controlling everything else? Can we not say that in our emotional unrest, in our uh, financial unrest, that even though in our circumstances it seems to get awful complicated and all tangled up, can't we go to God and say, God, you're in control. And maybe I don't see it in my own life right now, but I see it around me. And the God who's in control of this world is in control of me. And finally, God is compassionate, even though we don't deserve it. Mary had nothing Nothing, please hear me, nothing of value that she could bring to God. But the angel said that you have found favor, you have found grace in the eyes of God. The thing we need to understand is that God can do great things through sinners. He did it through Mary, and he can do it through us. And it is by him showing compassion, unmerited favor to us, that we can have joy amidst times of struggle. Are you troubled this Christmas? It's time to write a new story. The new story is the words of Isaac Watts. Joyful, joyful. It's a time of joy. It's a time of joy and it's a time of peace that we should find in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. Thank you for this wonderful message of hope and of joy that we have. Father, we're thankful for what you have done in our lives, what it means for us. Lord, amidst all kinds of uncertainty, all kinds of struggle, we can say as the hymn writer does, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. We adore you today. You are so good. You're so wonderful. And for that, we sing our praises to you. For the coming of you into the manger as we celebrate Christmas, we remember that. And so in doing so that we can live lives of obedience to you because you are in control and you have called us to it. So we take it with joy in our hearts and we will do as you say in Jesus' name. Amen.